Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all today. We are currently looking through the Gospel of John. This is our 24th week, and uh, it's likely that we'll stay in John through the end of the year. So uh, we've got a ways to go yet, uh, but if you have your Bibles today, you want to turn those to chapter 11. We were in chapter 11 last week, and we're going to finish up at the end of chapter 11. Um, also, in your program this morning, you'll find an outline if you're a note-taking person. There's a place for you to take some notes. And uh, from time to time, I like to mention on the back of each sermon outline uh, of my sermons is a wonderful companion article that is authored by... Uh, Brother Larry Bailey, and I appreciate his faithfulness in putting together those articles and uh, thank him for doing that. We're calling today's message The Breaking Point. The Breaking Point. Well, high up in a tree in British Columbia Shoal Harbor Migratory Bird Sanctuary, six birds were sharing a nest. Specifically, two bald eagles, three of their young eaglets and a baby red-tailed hawk. Now, sure, birds of different species sharing the same nest may sound rather strange, but for bird aficionados out there, this will sound especially strange because most of the time, bald eagles and red-tailed hawks are bitter enemies, known to fight each other to the death at times. Well, bird experts had been theorizing about how this uh, unexpected interspecies family came to be. And according to, to a news report, uh, the two options essentially boil down to a timeless question, which, which came first, right? The hawk or the egg? The hawk or the egg? Uh, fears over the, the birds' futures were stirred as wildlife biolo biologists were watching them. And why, one biologist pointed out that uh, this little red-tailed chick is sharing the nest with three fast-growing, usually very aggressive siblings. Sibling rivalry and, and even fratricide are not uncommon among eagles. However, Sanctuary caretaker Carrie Finley described the evils as attentive caregivers. Uh, he said, it's quite something to see the way the red-tailed hawk is treated. His parents are quite invested in his well-being. I read that little story and I thought, you know, we live in a world that is fraught with divisions and enemy lines from the animal kingdom to politics to the world of sports and entertainment and even in the church. But for now, in their own small way, these birds are modeling the kind of upside down world that I suppose we believers long for. A day in which God will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. But until that day, we must continue on. We have to, at times, maintain some uneasy alliances as we seek the way of the Lord. Now, we are finishing up in John chapter 11 today. And last week, we saw how Jesus wept at Lazarus' grave as he commanded the people to roll the stone away from the tomb and then raise Lazarus from the dead. And we talked about how that whole event was a picture of how God reveals 
God, uh, uh, of how Jesus reveals the Father's views on death. And in part, it is to encourage us to have a proper response to death. When we choose to rely on the God who knows and cares and rules over us, then we come to understand that even in life's very most difficult and confusing times, times like death, that he has our best interest in mind, both in this very temporary world and much more importantly, in the life to come. Now, here at the close of chapter 11, we see that John is focusing on the end of Jesus' public ministry. Now, what John has recorded thus far in chapters 1 through 11 took place over the period of about three years. Now, next week, we're going to look into chapter 12, which takes place over a a one-week period. And then we'll move into chapters 13 through 19, which cover a time span of literally just a few hours. So we see John slowing down his account as he focuses on the whole purpose of why Jesus came. And throughout this gospel, John has made it clear his goal in writing is to help us know Jesus. You might remember that we started this series all those weeks ago, 24 weeks ago or so, with John's very last statement from John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life, life in his name. And so everything recorded in John's gospel shows us who Jesus is and the reasons why we can believe that he is indeed the Messiah, the Savior. Underlying all of Jesus' claims and signs and miracles and teachings has been constant opposition from the religious establishment. We've looked at this numerous times. In today's text, we see what we're calling the final breaking point between the religious leaders and Jesus. The unease and the uncertainty over sharing what we might call a common nest has come to a head as we reach that breaking point. It's kind of like the eagle and the hawk, if you will. So let's read together the first part of this account. This begins in John chapter 11 in verse 45. This follows directly the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus. So let's read these words together. The words will be on the screen. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Mm. The word of God. The question that John's readers were left with nearly 2,000 years ago was, what will you do with Jesus? And that's a question that each of us has to ask ourselves regularly as well. What will I do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? What will we do with Jesus? And so as we look at the text, let's consider some responses. First, I want us to notice that some were thoroughly convinced. The first group went, uh, were thoroughly convinced of who Jesus was. After speaking with Mary and witnessing how Jesus had raised the dead man Lazarus from the grave, they witnessed God's visible splendor, his glory. These are the ones who took to heart all that they had heard and saw, and they began to follow Jesus. And even though the caliber of their faith is not described here, the writer declared it to be genuine faith in the Lord. The same faith that, that Martha and Mary had that we saw exercised last week. We, we know that they didn't vacillate or simply fade away from the scene like many of the fickle followers did after the first Passover that we looked at in chapter 2 or those in Samaria in chapter 4, or those who, who had just heard the word of, of God at the Festival of Lights that we saw in chapter 7 and 8, or even those that had saw Jesus on the other side of the Jordan in chapter 10. They were enamored with Jesus, but then quickly faded away. But these people, they were thoroughly convinced, and they continued to follow Jesus, even to Jerusalem towards danger. What, what's interesting in this passage is that, you know, that John doesn't focus on Lazarus. I mean, that was a, a big wow moment, wasn't it? But there are no recorded words from Lazarus. And, and so we don't know what he experienced while he was dead, nor do we know how long he lived afterwards. In fact, we have no idea really of anything about Lazarus after this event. We don't know what Mary said to these people when they came to her. After they witnessed the miracle of Lazarus. In fact, all we know is that this is a miracle that was a testimony of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of the living God. And these people now are absolutely, thoroughly convinced. I think this is why John doesn't point to the miracle. He doesn't point to Lazarus, but to Christ himself. And so this passage made me ask, I ask this of myself, and you might ask it of yourself. If I am so thoroughly convinced that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, that the word of God is truth, then what am I doing with my faith? How do I respond when I hear the word of God proclaimed? How is my faith being worked out 
on a daily basis in my life in a practical way. You see, friends, the moment that we place our faith in the Lord, he saves us. His spirit fills us and gives us certain gifts and abilities and capabilities. And certainly he wants us to enjoy what he gives us. But he also calls us to be faithful and to invest what he's given to us to advance his kingdom. I was reminded of a a TV show. Maybe you remember the old TV show on PBS called Antiques Roadhouse. Remember that where people would bring old stuff that they found in the attic to some expert for appraisal? People would bring all kinds of interesting things like old engraved pocket watches or silverware or ancient books. And I remember in one episode, a man brought an old vase to the antique expert who immediately recognized the value of the vase. And he asked the man, where did you get this? And the man said, well, my grandfather picked it up on one of his overseas trips. And and when he died, he left it to me. And it's been stored in my basement in a box for years. Well, the antique dealer told him that the vase was from the Ming dynasty in China. And it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Can you imagine the shock that the man had? He had no idea that what he had was so valuable and that it was sitting on a shelf in his basement in a box. That makes me think of this, friends, about the treasures that we have as believers in Christ a treasure of invaluable worth. And we must never underestimate the value of what we have been given by God. Never underestimate the value of our life and the impact that we can have on those around us as we respond in obedience to the Lord. And so what do we do with Jesus? May we be thoroughly convinced. And then may we respond in simple faith to the words of the Lord and follow him. So some were thoroughly convinced, but next we see that some were just thoughtless. Thoughtless. And when I use that word thoughtless here, I mean that they didn't care about the negative impact that their words would have on Jesus. They they were the second group who, who witnessed the nature and the works of Jesus. They saw him raise a dead man. But instead of taking these things and taking Jesus' teaching to heart, they didn't think through the present or the eternal implications of rejecting Jesus. And so their words were careless. They were irreverent. Instead of allowing the things that they witnessed to lead them to the truth about Jesus, they wasted the opportunity to place their trust in him. They didn't go to the Pharisees with the intent of witnessing to the truth. In fact, it seems to be quite the opposite. The passage doesn't tell us what they said to the Pharisees, but the context suggests that they were rebel rousers. 
motivated to cause Jesus harm. Kind of little, like little kids that are tattletales. And the result of their report stirred up an incredible reaction from the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. So when reflecting on these two groups, I began to, to think about what my life communicates to others. Maybe you can think about this as well. Does my life point people to the Lord and reveal his glory? What is it like to be on the other side of me? What do people see in me? Do they see a frail person full of faults and failures? Yet thoroughly convinced of God's love and acceptance and thankful because of the redeeming work of Christ in my life. I hope that's what they see. What about my verbal communication? Do I take the opportunity to speak about Jesus, about his word? Is my intent to, to edify, to lift up others? Are my words seasoned? Is there a, a conviction in my voice? Am I, am I sharpening others in their relationship with Christ and encouraging them to take steps of faith so that they will grow closer to God and become more like him. Or, or are there times when what comes out of my heart and my mind and my mouth causes harm? Do I repeat or gossip about a matter? Do I create division or separation between God's children? Do I, do I consider the impact that my words will have on the people around me? You know, in our own eyes, we may think that our ways are clean and innocent and see nothing wrong with our actions. But it is the Lord who weighs and examines the motives and the intents of our heart and he knows the truth. Like this second group, I think there are times when I am thoughtless or careless and I miss those opportunities that God has placed right in front of me to, to hear his word, to, to follow him, to live for him, to know him, to trust him, to love others, to encourage others. And so I must grapple with that. Am I thoughtless too? I came across an old Austrian proverb that says this, only the thinking man lives his life. A thoughtless man's life passes him by. You see, friends, we don't want to be like this second group of people who reacted to what they heard and saw. And, and what did they do with Jesus? They got him into trouble with their words. And who did they want to get him into trouble with? Well, with those who had the most to lose. That is, those who were the most threatened. And that is the third group that we'll look at, the third response. Some were threatened. Some were, some were thoroughly convinced. 
Some were thoughtless, but some were threatened. And John focuses on this third group more than the other two groups in this passage. These were the Pharisees who didn't like all the attention that Jesus was getting. And so they called an emergency council meeting to discuss what were they going to do with Jesus. If we let him go on like this, doing all these miracles, everybody's going to believe in him. Oh no! You see, the people knew. They knew that he was the one who had turned the water to wine. Who healed the royal officer's son and the paralytic at the pool. He was the one who fed that large group of over 5,000 people with one young man's sack lunch. He was the one who walked on water, who healed a blind man born from birth that way. And now... This same man has just raised Lazarus after he'd been dead for four days. The Pharisees are filled with fear as they ask, what what are we going to do with this man? If this keeps up, everyone's going to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And when that happens, Rome will perceive this new religion as a rebellion against Caesar. It will bring the wrath of the Roman Empire down on us. And they'll take away our temple and our nation and our power. And we will perish. You see, they feared the government more than they did God. They feared circumstances and events more than they did the creator of this world. You see, Rome had a rule about religion, and that was that you could practice religion if it was legitimate. That is, one that the government recognized. But if it was illegitimate, then the Romans had a way of bringing down in an incredibly brutal way a stoppage to what was going on. Well, Jesus threatened the Jewish council's religious system, their power structure. They were so afraid that if he kept performing these miracles, the whole nation would turn to him and away from them. They would lose their following, which was more important to them than following the truth of God's word. So Jesus not only threatened their power structure, his life and his works exposed just how feeble, how weak their own faith in God was, how powerless Their rules and regulations were to save them and how limited their understanding was of God's grace and mercy and goodness and patience and love towards sinners. You see, Jesus revealed his Father's heart to the lost world. Now that council, those religious leaders, could have taken it as a challenge in a positive way. This is the relationship that God wants you to have with him. This is the life that he wants for you. This is the love that he wants you to show to others. But instead, they took it as a threat. Well, how does this impact us? We're not Pharisees, right? We're not religious leaders controlling a system, are we? But brothers and sisters, when the Lord challenges us to take steps of faith, to trust him in deeper ways, to die to ourselves and live for him, 
to forgive others lavishly, to love others, even those that are unlovable. Do we take it as a threat or as a challenge for our good and for our growth? What does this show us? It shows us that we can be very religious but very lost. We can memorize scriptures and be blind to their truth. We can say all the right things, but not from a heart that has been transformed by the power of the gospel. For this religious crowd, Jesus' very presence was a threat. For the believer, his presence is powerful. It is life-changing. His presence brings life and joy and salvation and conviction and cleansing and deliverance and healing. Yet some didn't see it. Some completely missed it, and to others it caused great grief and anxiety because they didn't want to give up control. You know, Caiaphas was the high priest at that time. And he thought the best way to handle this threat was just to remove it. He said, it's better if one man dies to save our nation. In other words, the official decision that day was that Jesus had to go. We got to get rid of this guy. And the leaders thought that they were in control of the situation, didn't they? But all along it was God who was working out his plan of redemption. Oh, Caiaphas didn't even realize that he had prophesied rightly about what Jesus would accomplish for Israel. But as John goes on to elaborate, not only for that nation, but to bring together and to unite all the children of God scattered around the world. Friends, that's you and that's me. And that's God's plan for us that he carefully worked out all these years ago. Now, originally, the council wanted to wait until after the Passover to put Jesus to death. But God, again, had other plans. Because Jesus was ordained to be the perfect sacrificial lamb, that Passover, that takes away the sin of the world. The council wanted to take Jesus out. But the death of Jesus Christ was going to accomplish exactly what God intended. Not what they intended. It would bring multitudes into the kingdom of God. Let's go back for a moment to those eagles and that hawk. That surviving young red-tailed hawk the biologist gave him the name of Spunky. And they kept an eye on him. And he eventually left the nest. And the eaglet siblings also left, and they went out on their own. And when asked for his predictions about the hawk's survival, one wildlife biologist noted that Spunky had one thing in his favor, proof to be a survivor. He said, most eaglets are very aggressive. This hawk has proven that audacity gets gets some things. 
Well, friend, the time for uneasy alliances in this world are over. You see, the comfort and security of the nest is no longer available for us. In the end, each of us are challenged with the question, what will I do with Jesus? Will we be thoughtless and careless or underestimate the treasure that he has placed inside of us? How will we react to his words and his works? Will we be threatened by his presence? Will we reject him? Or will we welcome his words and his works to be convinced of who he is and make the commitment to truly, fully, obediently follow him? You see, when we do, when we do, he will seek to change us, to push us out of the nest of comfort and satisfaction and tradition and personal preference. But it will only be that way when we accept the discomfort that he offers Only then will we experience the real transformation and the real comfort and the abundance that Jesus promises to each of us. And so, we ask that question one more time. What will you do with Jesus? Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the power of your word Father, we thank you even more for the power of your Son and your Spirit and your perfect plan for each of us. Father, my prayer today is that each of us will consider this question deeply. What will we do with your Son? Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to respond. And Father, may we respond by being thoroughly convinced willing to go on the path that you call us to, desirous of your ways more than our own ways. Father, we thank you for your help.